Well, good evening. This morning we uh, had a lesson out of the book of Titus, and that's where we're going to be again tonight. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Titus, that, that's where our lesson is going to come from. And we looked uh, at the idea of grace as it's described in the book of Titus. And, uh, and I think that there is a lot in there that is valuable for us as individual Christians and also us as a community of believers, uh, an entire church. But one thing I was thinking about as, as reading through the book of Titus is how the entire book is helpful and instructive for how it is to be a faithful people of God, a healthy and sound church in the midst of a world and in the midst of an environment that can sometimes be hostile and can be, can be difficult. Um, I, I want you to imagine for just a moment living in a world like where Crete uh, was and where Titus was sent to go preach. Um, listen to some of the things in the letter itself that describe the context and the culture in which Titus is working. Uh, look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. This is describing some of the stuff that Titus is going to have to deal with while he's working there with the church in Crete. By the way, Crete is an island. Uh, it's, uh, it's in the Greek Isles, and it's uh, pretty large, and uh, there is uh, an, an interesting history there. Paul visited it in, uh, towards the end of the book of Acts. But uh, there are churches that have been established there, and Titus has some work to do with those churches there on that island. But notice the, the culture here in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. All right, so he, he says that you're going to have some some issues there. There's a lot of people there who are causing problems. A lot of people there are deceivers. A lot of people there uh, spend their time deceiving other people, even upsetting households and families, and they do so for their own sordid gain. Like they, they are benefiting financially from what they're saying and teaching, and they are taking advantage of people who uh, should not be taken advantage of, and they're doing it to bless themselves and to make their own lives better. Th that's a difficult thing to have to fight against. And Titus is told that you're going to have to put a stop to that, the, the, to, uh, to silence. These men must be silenced. And so T Titus is going to have to do that in a couple of ways, and we'll see one of them here in a second. But notice uh, Paul in verse 12 quotes a saying that was said about Cretans. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Now, a word of advice. Anytime you hear like a group of people or a place uh, given some sort of uh, description like that, you should always take it with a grain of salt because the reality is most stereotypes aren't entirely accurate. But what's really funny about this is Paul's next line after saying that in verse 13, he says, and this is true. Uh, Paul, Paul thinks that they actually seem to nail it with this uh, description of, of Cretans. I don't think you would say that if they didn't have a serious reputation of being a people who you couldn't trust, a people who were lazy, a people who it was difficult to work with. And so Titus is going to have some real struggle on his hands. There are churches that have been popping up and these are the type of people that uh, the church is living among, but also these are probably going to be some of the types of people who have become Christians. Like the people who are described in this way are the people who have uh, heard the gospel and have been converted. And that's one of the reasons why when he describes their former way of life, he will use words like 
chapter 3 and verse 3, we read it this morning. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Uh, if that's what the former life of these Christians looks like, and, and, I, and I, I do like that Paul includes himself in that. He's not saying only the Cretans were like that. He does, he does add himself to that, and, and you, could, you could see his life, uh, um, some of those things that have popped up in his former way of life, certainly uh, hateful towards enemies and things like that. But he's not painting the picture of a very happy, godly place where everyone was eager to hear the gospel. And then once they did, there wasn't a lot of changes that needed to be made in their lives. And, you know, they have to start going to church now. But otherwise, morally, they were on the same page already. That's not the way that Paul discusses this. In fact, it seems like even among the religious there, there were certain contentions that uh, caused controversy and struggle that are now causing problems for the church. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 13... Right after Paul says, this testimony is true, he tells Titus that one of the things he's going to have to do is reprove them for it. He says, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Then notice, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So the idea is that there are people who are teaching myths, teaching things that are false. He mentioned earlier in verse 11, silence those who are teaching things they ought not teach for sordid gain. There's false teaching taking place there that's causing a lot of issues. When you get to chapter 3 and verse 9, this is one of the reasons why Titus is going to be told to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. That seems to be what was like reigning supreme, or those types of foolish controversies that people might have, whether it's about genealogy or uh, different myths, different things that uh, ultimately have no practical value to the life of the church, but if you really dive into them, you could end up causing division among Christians. There are so many issues that, and it's not just Crete 2,000 years ago, there are so many issues that we face today that in the grand scheme of things, whether you hold this position or this position, you're still going to pretty much live the same life as a Christian. They might deal with an interpretation of one word in one passage or something like that, but Christians can get pretty hostile and pretty contentious, and they can end up focusing on some of those types of things to the exclusion of some of the grand doctrines and, and teachings in Scripture, and not only the grand doctrines and teachings, but the way those are supposed to manifest themselves in your life and in your obedience. And people who might be disobedient in uh, certain areas of their lives will focus on a small piece of minutia and judge another Christian because of it while all the time ignoring the moral failings in their own life. And that's a recipe for disaster spiritually. It's a recipe for di dis, uh, division within a church. And I think those are the types of things that Titus is being told, you're going to have to deal with a lot of this stuff. It seems like a lot of the emphasis is in the wrong place. And so don't even get involved in those types of foolish controversies. They're not helpful. And to the people who do, chapter 3 and verse 10, Take someone who, that, that's what he cares about. He likes finding a small point that he disagrees with someone else about and blowing it out of proportion. He says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. So if you hear it, don't immediately reject. Be patient. Warn him. But if he does it again, warn him again. If he keeps doing it, you might have to reject this person. Uh, you might have to not let this person have a say in what's going on in the church because they're going to cause more harm than good. 
that's not a rare thing. That's a problem that churches sometimes have to deal with. Uh, verse 11 says that a person like that is perverse and is sinning and is being self-condemned. Um, so that's kind of some of the environment and some of those are some of the issues that as you read the book of Titus, you see those things pop up and you're like, man, that's not, that's not an easy place to go do ministry. Uh, that's not an easy place to go have to work. But that's where Titus is. And that's one of the reasons this letter is written to encourage him, to uh, give him some direction in what he should do to try to combat and try to solve some of these issues so that these issues don't end up destroying the church, so that these issues don't become the most important thing. And I think as you read through the book of Titus, you can, you can come up with a pretty lengthy list of things that Titus should be doing in his ministry there that will help combat these types of, uh, of problems. We're going to narrow it down to four that seem to pop up uh, throughout the letter. And they're the types of things that I think even today, when we find ourselves, um, when there's some disputes going on that have split churches, or when we find that there are uh, points of, of minutia that get dredged up that can cause problems, or when we find out that there's false teaching taking place, and, uh, and people are actually having their, their families destroyed because of it, or people are having... These are the types of things that help a church stay at peace through that type of turmoil in its environment. One of those is the first thing pretty much that, Tim, that Titus is told to do is uh, get yourself some good godly elders within the churches at Crete. Uh, that's something they're going to need. If they're going to be able to withstand these types of people and these types of problems, you need good godly leaders and good godly elders. And so when you look at chapter 1 and verse 5, we're about to get the reason that Titus was left at Crete. And the reason is twofold. One of them's pretty specific. The other one's kind of vague. You have to just kind of pick it up as you read along. But in chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, For this reason I left you at Crete, that you would set in order what remains... That's, that's mission number one, set in order what remains. Uh, but then the second one is, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. All right. These cities in Crete are going to need elders. Uh, these uh, churches there, they are going to need strong leadership because they are going to be in an environment and in a culture where people are going to be testing the church and trying to cause divisions in the church and being rebellious in the church. And so you need some people who can handle that. And what's interesting is he gives lists of the type of people that that's going to be. And these lists are not uh, necessarily limited to those types of people who are themselves really hard-headed and disagreeable and can constantly combat and win all the fights against the others. There, there's going to be some aspect of that in there, being able to be knowledgeable enough to refute them. But by and large, the way you solve problems with troublemakers is with peacemakers. And that's going to be a good description of what a lot of these elders are. These are people who have been living faithfully and godly lives for a long time. They don't go seeking unnecessary disputes. They don't go causing uh, turmoil and conflict. They have peaceful homes. They have peaceful lives. And they are people who can bring peace to the church. And so he goes on to describe uh, what these men are going to be like. These are the, the elders or the, the bishops or the overseers. Uh, the, the word is episcopoi. It's going to be something like bishop or overseer. Uh, people who look over the church and try to lead it in a good direction. In verse 6, he gives descriptions of what these types of people are. If any man is above reproach, 
the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. It's like all these other people are getting involved in rebellion. Choose the people who aren't. Uh, Choose the people who are not uh, following suit in that way. Verse 7, there's the reason why you want one who's above reproach. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not uh, addicted to wine or pugnacious or fond of sordid gain. Notice the contrast here between some of the other things that we've been seeing. Notice those people in verse 11 they're teaching things they ought not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Well, elders are not supposed to be people who are after sordid gain. Elders are not supposed to be people who, uh, you know, one of the reasons why perhaps not addicted to wine is in there is because that's going to hurt you with all these other descriptions. Not self-willed. Like, what you want personally isn't the driving force in your life. That's an important attribute, a qualification, quality uh, of an elder. Not quick-tempered. You can have a disagreement with someone and still love that person and still be under control, just as under control at the end of the conversation as you were at the beginning of the conversation and throughout the whole thing. You don't lose your temper on people, uh, even when you begin to suspect that some of these people might be, uh, you know, rebellious men, evil talkers, deceivers, like the, the descriptions that he gives to some of these other people. Can you talk to people who are that difficult to deal with and still keep control of your temper? Uh, the next thing he mentions is not addicted to wine. And, you know, as soon as you start adding alcohol to volatile situations, you're not helping those situations. Uh, you're not helping to bring about peace. And so that becomes something that's, uh, that's an important part of this. Not pugnacious or violent, uh, not fond of sordid gain. Those descriptions right there are all descriptions of how to be a peacemaker in a world that's lacking peacemakers. Uh, how, is, how it is that you can deal with these types of rebellious and difficult people while yourself uh, remains committed and faithful to God and remains a positive example to the church. Verse 8, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that you'll be able to do two things. So that you will both be able to exhort in sound and healthy teaching and to refute those who contradict. That final phrase is really important for what he's going to go on to say about those people who you're going to have to contradict. But notice, no scripture like, like, make Scripture a part of your life so that when you teach it, you can exhort the church, help the church be healthy or sound. Well, one thing that's, um, that's, I think sometimes the word gets thrown around a lot, sound doctrine. And we get it from passages like this. In fact, sound doctrine is used a number of times in First uh, and Second Timothy and in Titus uh, in these three books. Um, and we sometimes limit sound doctrine to like a couple of core teachings that uh, deal with kind of the beliefs of the church and the practices of the church that, that should never be tampered with. And I don't, I don't have a problem with including those things in sound doctrine. But the word doctrine is literally just the word teaching. And the word sound is very literally the word for healthy. Uh, it's, it's teaching that's healthy. And when sound doctrine is described, it's actually not usually about, like, specific areas of church practice or something like that. What you'll see in chapter 2 is when he talks about a sound doctrine or healthy teaching, he talks about the way older men are supposed to be temperate, dignified, sensible, healthy in their faith, 
in love and in perseverance. Like it deals with the conduct of your life. It deals with uh, the teaching of the church that makes the church and makes your walk with Christ a healthy and good and, and valuable one, uh, where you produce good fruit as opposed to bad fruit, and and uh, peace is the result of it as opposed to conflict and, and hardship. And, and so, sound doctrine is teaching that makes you healthier as a church and as a Christian. Uh, and, and so, what he's saying is the elder needs to be able to exhort to make the church healthier, but then also. Yeah, to refute those who contradict because they come around and uh, hear or contradict those who are rebellious. Uh, and, and here in the church at Crete, that seems to be a big problem. Notice right after this description of elders, these types of men and being able to refute those who contradict, verse 10 is where he begins his description of the others. And he says, for there are many rebellious men. It's like you need these elders because there's a lot of men who aren't like this. The elders are supposed to not be rebellious, uh, but here you have people who are rebellious. The elders are supposed to not go after sordid gain, but you're going to have people in your context and culture who are after sordid gain. So you need kind of the, the, uh, the opposite of these factious men to be leading and overseeing the church. And so if you want a good, godly, healthy church, that's a great place to start. Uh, don't choose people who are just as factious, just as divisive as those who cause splits and cause problems. Choose the peacemakers. They're going to be the really ones that, the ones that are really helpful. One thing that I also find fascinating about uh, this list is um, we have a tendency sometimes uh, to take elders and put them on like an unrealistic spiritual pedestal. I'm not trying to say, like, our elders aren't great godly men. They are. You guys are wonderful. Uh, but, uh, but sometimes it's like we have the mindset that to be an elder, you have to be a superhuman Christian. One thing that's interesting, when you read through the lists of descriptions of elders that are given in, in 1 Timothy 3 and that are given here in Titus, and there's a few descriptions in 1 Peter 5, there's like they, it pops up a few places. None of the things that are mentioned there are all that superhuman. They're, in fact, the type of thing that most godly Christian men should be, you know, be able to be described in that way. Uh, it, it are the types of things that, uh, that should be the goal, you know, what, what godly Christian man should be, um, you know, not above reproach, or he should be quick-tempered and self-willed and addicted to wine and pugnacious and fond of sordid gain. Like, those are things that no Christian should, should say, that's me. Uh, and so here's, here's what I think an elder basically is. Someone who has faithfully lived out the call to be a Christian for a lengthy period of time and demonstrated that they can do so uh, effectively, that they could do so in their home and that they could do so in their dealings with others. Like, they're people who are true followers of Jesus at home and with the church, and they are, they are successful at living the life that Jesus has called them to live. They're good, godly, faithful Christians who have been that way for a long time. And, and I think that that's, in essence, what the church needs in the leadership and, in, and among, uh, its, uh, and among its, its overseers. And those are the types of people that Titus and Timothy are supposed to look for. Nothing necessarily, you know, superhuman about that or, or you know, ultra unrealistically Christian. It's just faithful men 
who have been doing what God called them to do, those are the types of men who make the greatest leaders in the church. And so those are the types of people that Titus is to be looking for. And I will say, I think those are the types of people that we have here. And it's, a, it's, a, it's something that as a church and as a community, we should be very thankful for. Uh, so what are you going to do if you want to have a healthy church in an unhealthy environment? Get good, godly, faithful uh, leaders. Uh, the second thing that Titus uh, then is told to, uh, to work on is, uh, when you remember chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, set in order what remains and appoint elders. Well, he just covered in chapter 1 the appoint elders. So I'm going to take chapters 2 and 3 to be the rest of the stuff, the stuff that remains, uh, the other important things he needs to do. In chapter 2, in verse 1, He's going to say sound doctrine or healthy teaching. He says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine or for, for healthy teaching for the church. And so another really important aspect of having a healthy church in the midst of an unhealthy environment is having healthy teaching. Is having teaching that's going to benefit uh, the Christians in their daily walk with God. And when you look at verses 2 and 3 and 4 down through uh, verse 6, you're going to see, really down through verse uh, 9 and 10, you're going to see how to address and what some of the spiritual goals are going to be for people at different stages in their lives. Whether they're an older man or an older woman or a younger man or a younger woman or even someone who is a servant. Like these people in these different areas of their lives are going to be called to be faithful. And they're going to have certain spiritual goals as a part of that. And some of those are going to be uh, things that deal with their, their manner of life. Uh, in fact, these are, most of these are, they're not so much the types of things necessarily that you do uh, when you're at church on Sunday, although, you know, you should still do them there. But they're the types of things that you, that define your manner of life. And, and so that's what the, the next thing he's told to do is, is teach a healthy way to live for people to carry with them throughout their lives. If they're an older man, to be temperate and dignified and sensible, healthy and sound in faith, in love and in perseverance. You know, keep with it. Keep loving. Be healthy in your faith and, uh, and to grow in that. Uh, older women, likewise, to be reverent and respectful in their behavior, not malicious gossips or, again, enslaved to wine, and good teachers, Women who are able to teach what is good. Specifically, he mentions teaching the younger women how to be godly mothers and wives and, and, and to have godliness in their home. One thing that's, that's interesting when it comes to elders or when it comes to some of these descriptions that we're reading here about the way people live is the descriptions for how you ought to act and behave as a Christian they are at the home, they are, you know, out when you're among other people, they are at the church. There's not, there's never like a change that takes place. Be this type of person among these people, be this type of person when you're at home. Godly, healthy teaching is going to impact the way that you make decisions, whether you're talking to your kids, your husband, your wife, your neighbor, your coworker, your elder, your fellow brother or sister in Christ. Like they are supposed to impact your entire life. When you behave one way around one group and another way around another group, that's a real fast uh, path to no longer being above reproach. Uh, people can see that type of hypocrisy. They can sniff out that type of hypocrisy, and it will destroy any credibility that you have as a Christian. It'll harm the cause of Christ because people will begin to see that 
oh, well, Christianity is not actually something that matters to him. It's a face that he puts on when he needs to go here. But his real life, you can see it when he's far away from there. That's who he truly is. And when people see that type, when they see Christianity as a mask, then all of a sudden it becomes a worthless. And so healthy teaching is about taking off the mask and being a true follower, whether you're at home, whether you're at the building, no matter where you are. In verse 6, he also encourages the young men to be sensible. But then in verses 7 and 8, it almost like, it's almost like he switches from talking specifically about the different groups in the church to telling Titus himself how it is to live and behave as someone who's a teacher and a, and a preacher, a minister of the gospel, as someone who's going to be working with these different groups. He says in verse 6, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And then in verse 7 he says, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, and, uh, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So Titus, you yourself live in such a way that you're above reproach. Live in such a way that your doctrine and teaching, uh, your manner of life, and your speech is something that people can't look at and criticize the whole church because of it. Because again, that, that's, we mentioned it a second ago, but when people see a mask and when they see Christianity makes you look this way here, but you actually look this way here, then all of a sudden, uh, you can't be beyond reproach in that type of, uh, in, in that, with that type of attitude. People will immediately see the hypocrisy in that. People's view of Christ, like the world's view of Christ, isn't going to come from reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because most of the time, they're not going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For the most part, their view of Christ is going to come from what they see when they look at Christians. What they see when they look at people who claim to be living for Christ and loving Christ and living like Christ. And when they see hypocrisy, when they see uh, that they're constantly bickering and fighting with one another, when the church is not a place that's a family, when the church is not a place where you can go to for some safety and some relief from the division and stress and bickering and fighting in the world, then all of a sudden Christ doesn't look that good. It's like Christ's reputation, whether this is right or not, it's true, Christ's reputation often depends upon our reputation. If you have a bad reputation, his reputation will suffer because of it. So make sure that you are living out your Christian life in such a way that whether you're at work, whether you're at home, or whether you're here at the building, you are still living like Christ. You are still living out his teachings. You are still the same person striving to be faithful. Will you sin? Yes. And that's why a church in this type of environment is going to, number three, what we talked about a lot this morning, need grace along the way. Uh, grace becomes the forgiveness for those failures. Grace becomes the uh, means by which you can be saved, the foundation of your hope, and it becomes the purpose or the driving force behind the good deeds that you then do. But it's from this discussion that in chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul launches into that lengthy discussion of grace that we talked about this morning. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 11, for the grace of God uh, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So even on an island like Crete, where all of the people are supposedly uh, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, even there, 
the grace of God that leads to salvation has appeared. Even those types of people can take hold of it. Even those types of people can have the salvation and the hope of eternal life that God has in store for mankind through the coming of Jesus himself. And so that's a message that the church needs to hear. The church needs to remember that it's by the grace of God that you have been saved. And so if you are in an environment where it seems like it's a rotten place to be, and it seems like there's a lot of divisive people, and a lot of people remember that the grace of God is even more powerful than the sinfulness you see around you. If you look at the culture around you, and you don't like the direction that it's heading, you think that it's uh, heading in a wrong way, a dangerous way, it might be. That's true. That happens. Cultures sometimes, I think, can be a little bit better and sometimes be a little bit worse, and it doesn't usually stay the same. It's usually trending in some direction, and it's probably different depending on where you live and what time you live in. But the grace of God is more powerful than any direction your culture is going to go. Don't lose hope in the grace of God because you don't like what you see in the news. The grace of God's more powerful. A church that is going to survive an unhealthy environment is going to have to be a church that relies upon and remembers and, and upholds the truth of the grace of God and shows it and demonstrates it to the world around us. We are not only called to receive God's grace, but to extend God's grace. Uh, when you look at, at Jesus' uh, uh, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer, there's a beautiful part in it where he says, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the idea of it is forgiveness is essential. It's crucial. It's, a, it's, it's, it's our only hope that God is graciously forgiving us of our sins. But the forgiveness that we receive from God is supposed to be extended to those around us. We not only receive it, but we offer it. The grace of God is something not only that we receive, but we demonstrate and show and make available. We offer to the world around us so that they can receive God's grace and gift of salvation. That becomes central as well. So that, number four, uh, if you want to be a healthy church in an unhealthy environment, because of the grace of God, you begin to engage in what Paul is going to use uh, over and over again, the term good deeds or good works, uh, some of your translations might say. This is a phrase that's going to pop up quite a few times in the book of Titus. Uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 16, talking about wearing a mask. Well, this is a passage where he's going to kind of focus on that idea. Talking about the unhealthy people out there, the people who are defiled and unbelieving. Uh, he's going to say, they profess to know God but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So the word deed or works is, is used twice there. And he says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. All right, so their, their lips might be saying all the right things. They might be talking about the lordship of Jesus. They might be saying, we know God and God loves us and God is wonderful and all that. They might have the words of doctrine right in some ways. But their deeds are such that they deny God to his face. Uh, they might never say those words, but by looking at their life, you see the denial. 
And the problem with that is you have, you have a person who's torn in two. You have the person that they claim to be and the person that they actually are. And that's the hypocrisy we were talking about earlier. That is something that is so destructive. Because what happens is if you have a person who that's their reputation, they profess one thing and they live another thing, that even when they do good things, he says being detestable and disobedient, notice that last phrase, worthless for any good deed. First of all, they're probably not doing good deeds, but even if they did a good deed, that good deed is going to be worthless for the cause of Christ because it's already been defiled by their hypocrisy. And so people are going to question or doubt the sincerity of it or people aren't going to believe. And so it's like, if, even if you do decide to do a good thing, it ends up becoming worthless for the cause of Christ. It, it's kind of like it reminds me of the, you know, in, in the law of Moses, um, the children of Israel are called to live in a holy way, to be a nation of priests. They're supposed to be a light to those around them. They're supposed to be able to show God's goodness. But if they claim to worship Yahweh and they don't keep the law, then all of a the sudden, if they claim to worship Yahweh and they, they act unjust, or they act like the nations around them, then God's name suffers for that. His reputation suffers. Or if they're actually doing what God wants them to, but they also start worshiping idols. Well, then again, it's the idols that will receive the glory. Like, even if they do the right thing, if you're worshiping idols, it becomes a worthless right thing because the glory goes to something that doesn't exist. Or the glory goes to wood or stone or gold. It doesn't go to the God who created you. And so you can do the right thing and have it not matter if you're not focusing it or directing it to the right place, to the right source, which is, which is God. And we can, we can commit the same thing in our lives. Even if we don't necessarily have an idol, we can live in such a way that even if we do a good deed, the glory for that goes to the wrong source if we're not faithfully living for God throughout our lives. So good deeds are going to matter a lot here. When you look down at uh, chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7, the passage we read a moment ago where Titus is told how he is supposed to, to live. Um, in verse 7, it, he says, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds. There's that phrase again. It's going to pop up a bunch in this, these short three chapters. You be an example of good deeds. One of the best ways to teach how to live the right kind of life is to live it yourself as an example. Uh, Jesus not only taught his disciples uh, what to do, but he then lived it out in such a way that they could see it. And that's the call that Christians have, not just to say the right things, but to actually live them out so that you can be an example of those right things. And what about the, the fact that, yeah, we're called to engage in good deeds, but every one of us also engages in lawless deeds. Every one of us has sinned and does sin and probably will continue to sin. What do you do with those? Well, in chapter 2 and verse 14, we have a brief description of the redemption of Jesus that he offers through his grace. And we're told in chapter 2 and verse 14 that he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. There's the word deed again. So those lawless deeds in your life they, you are redeemed from those. Those aren't your owner anymore, but you have been redeemed from those. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, or people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So you are purchased from your wicked deeds to Christ, who then purifies you, calls you his own, and sends you out to then go do good deeds. 
That's how you show the grace of God. You show what he has done for you through your actions. Uh, In chapter 3 and verse 1, Titus is told to remind them, all right, so keep teaching these things and remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. You never know when an opportunity for a good deed is going to pop up in front of you, so be ready for it. Like, before you even go out, have made up your mind, I'm going to do something today that is good, because you're much more likely to act upon it if you're prepared for the opportunity. If you're not prepared for the opportunity, you could just drive right past it and think, I should have done something there, but I'm already past it. I'm just going to go. But if you're prepared and looking for the opportunity to do good deeds, you're much more likely to engage in them. Chapter 3 and verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Notice uh, the contrast between chapter 1 and verse 16, which ends by saying they're worthless for any good deed, and chapter 3 and verse 8 that says, engage in good deeds which are good and profitable. These are not worthless anymore. They have been redeemed and they have been given a purpose and significance so that the good deeds are now something that is genuine and profitable for mankind. That's what the church is called to engage in. So be a servant. Be someone who will help others who are in in need. Be someone who will uh, be generous with your time. Be generous with your wealth. Be generous with your abilities in order to make the lives of people around you better. And do so by the grace of God and for the glory of God. In fact, to conclude the whole letter, he's going to, in chapter 3 and verse 14, notice uh, before his final salutation, his, uh, his concluding encouragement, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet the pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. You can see he, he's, good deeds is an important part of his letter here. If you want to be a healthy church in an unhealthy environment, You need a strong leadership who will lead you in that direction. You need healthy teaching that will remind you of the way you ought to live, whether you're at home or whether you're at the building, no matter where you are. Consistent, healthy, non-hypocritical teaching. You need to rely upon and extend the grace of God and then go out and work. Go do good deeds in the name of Christ. And in so doing, you can be on an island like Crete, surrounded by... Uh, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, and you can still make a positive impact for Christ. His light can shine in a world like that. Um, I don't know that we would describe Maryville as a, a place where everyone's a liar, an evil beast, and a lazy glutton, but I think the opportunity for the light of Christ to shine is there, and it's all around us if we will but take uh, advantage of uh, the opportunities we are given, ready for good deeds, engaging in good deeds, and uh, living in such a way that those deeds bring glory to Christ. If there's anyone here this evening who uh, would like the salvation and the grace that Christ offers, he's offering it to you now. You can name him as Lord of your life, change your life to be transformed by him, to live for him now, and have your sins washed away in baptism. If you have the need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.